We are uh, doing, uh, continuing our series, our Advent series, uh, with this focus on longing or waiting. And, um, and this, this week, as we look here at Luke chapter 2, this classic uh, birth narrative, uh, we're looking at this longing for peace. Longing for peace. Uh, we're pretty familiar with, maybe have heard a great deal, even these words ring in our ears, this uh, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One is, is that if you've been in the church um, for any period of time, this is, this is, again, one that we regularly hear on uh, Christmas Day even. This is the story uh, that we read as a family on Christmas Day. Uh, you know, this is also one of those places where the, the sacred celebration at Christmas the, that we celebrate as a church, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus that is the center of Christmas for us, uh, has some overlap with our cultural uh, celebration because of Charlie Brown's Christmas story. Linus reads this passage, right? So a lot of people have heard this a lot because they love the Charlie Brown Christmas special and have heard this accounting of this declaration of peace. Yet, if we're honest, uh, we might love, we, we, I love Christmas, um, and we talk about the fact that uh, for a lot of people it's a, a difficult time because it highlights the way things are supposed to be, right? Um, but even as somebody who loves Christmas, I would not describe Christmas as a peaceful time. Um, even as I have talked about the fact that the Christmas Eve service is one of my favorite services of the year. We love having people over afterward. Um, it is a time of joy and celebration. But as we think about peace, often combined with you know, peace and quiet, uh, Christmas doesn't fall into that, that category. You go to the stores, it's busier. You, you go out to Christmas celebrations, there's crowds. One of our favorite things when we lived in New York was to go in and see the tree at Rockefeller Center and look at the windows. And it, it, it was, the last thing it was was peaceful, right? It was, it's crazy. Uh, but that's just indicative of a lot of things that happen at this time. And so what, what is going on here with this promise of peace and how does that relate to our celebration of Jesus, the God-man, the, the God himself becoming a man in the incarnation. H- how do we think about this peace and what does it mean for us? As we long for it, as we long for uh, this kind of, really, biblically, the idea is, is the Old Testament word, shalom, that all things would be made right. There'd be a, a flourishing, that things would be as they should be. This is what peace is. It's not just peace and quiet. But how do we hope for that? Well, that's not what we experience either. Even if we do experience peace and quiet, it's, it's, it's not, certainly not completely shalom. It's not things as they should be. But here is this incredible promise from this heavenly host, this host of angels bringing and proclaiming peace, fitting with the promises that have already come, both from the Old Testament that even the songs in the previous chapter from Mary and from Zechariah, uh, Chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 79, He has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is being fulfilled in Jesus, and it is coming in a way that is surprising. 
We're going to see actually that it comes in three ways, that the peace of God comes. The peace that we long for comes in three ways. It comes in contrast, it comes in power, and it comes in humility. Those are our three points. It comes in contrast, in power, and in humility. Let me pray. Lord, meet us this morning. Give us your peace that we might sit in the promise of it, that we might experience your peace, and that we might hope for it fully and ultimately one day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The first thing that we see is that the peace of God comes in contrast. It comes in contrast to the, the the, the promises of peace that come from Basically, anywhere else, our culture, other religions, whatever it might be. And and we see that happening here. We didn't actually have uh, read the first six verses of chapter two, but we might be familiar with those as well. Verse one says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And it goes on to talk about the census that is being conducted here. And Caesar Augustus was one of the uh, early emperors ruling and reigning in the time of what has become known as the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And uh, it was an absence of some wars, and yet it came uh, with a heavy hand. It came with the threat of of violence, you know, keep peace, or or there's going to be violence, right? Uh, And and there are things in, uh, in the the Pax Romana that can be certainly uh, celebrated, but in this moment you have Uh, Caesar Augustus, who is promising his own version of peace, and he's doing it in his own power, and he is is proclaiming himself as that powerful one. He is uh, often referred to as as Savior, even. And so this contrast comes when the the angels announce Jesus as, as Savior, and they announce him as Lord. It is clearly in contrast to Caesar Augustus and the peace that he's proclaiming, that he is saying that he can offer. And, and, and we see as well that he is he's coming with this desire to demonstrate his own power. This whole census, the fact that Joseph and Mary are required to travel even while she is uh, about to deliver a child, it, it, it's a demonstration of his power and uh, an attempt to determine how, just how much power he has, how many people are under his reign and rule. But the... Those that would have heard this story in the beginning, they would have heard very clearly the contrast of Jesus to this earthly king and the peace that he was offering. It it was uh, this reminder uh, that the peace that Caesar offered was was actually pretty limited. And even the Pax Romana in in the course of history was a pretty short period of time. Even if you said everything there was great, which it wasn't, uh, it ended as is the case with uh, the realities of all the, the peace treaties that we see in the world. I mean, thankfully, some of them are, are still in play, but an uh, author named Ian Barclay says this in his book from the 70s, The Facts of the Matter. He says, in, in the last 300 years, there have been 386 wars in Europe. And since the year 1500, 8,000 known peace treaties have been signed. Each one was signed with the intention that it would last forever, but the average length of each was a little over two years. We we think about the peace that comes in this world, and and we think even now, I was struck with the the recent threats of nuclear 
weapons being used by, by Putin, right? That feels heavy. I, I, I grew up in the Cold War and that felt like a threat. And then the Iron Curtain fell and things started to smooth out. It seemed like better relations. And, uh, and when my buddies who did ROTC when I was in college, they entered into the army, they thought they didn't really foresee going to war. And then 9-11 happened. And now we're seeing uh, this threat of war with, with Russia. And the peace that we had hoped for, that we thought was just gonna be the pattern for life, it, it did not continue. And, and certainly we hope that there is not the use of nuclear weapons, but there is brokenness in the world that doesn't bring lasting peace. Even when we enter into these accords or peace treaties that are good, even when we trust in governments for peace, and we should look for our governments to, to move in that direction, we recognize that those things are not ultimate, that they will not continue forever. Those are not things that we can trust in in the long term. And there's this recognition of that as we, we find Jesus coming in to the story in contrast to those other places where we might hope for peace. Now, maybe the thing that you're struggling right now with right now is the, the global unrest that is happening. But it's actually more likely that you're struggling with the lack of peace on a smaller scale a relationship with a family member or a coworker or uh, some situation in your job where you're not feeling peaceful or at school in a particular class and you're struggling and you're having uh, chaos in your own mind, a disquieting in your soul over any number of things that you might be experiencing. And so for you, longing for peace is, is a particular situation or maybe two or three or more that you would like to see peace brought to that situation, relationally uh, or otherwise. And you are feeling like that's where peace would really come. And, you, and, and our temptation is to think that for God to bring peace is for him to fix all of those things in our lives. You know, this is a little bit of what Jason was talking about in the beginning when we think about joy, that we sometimes try to push sorrow away as though it doesn't exist. We try to say, God offers joy or peace, and so we won't have those struggles, but it comes along with the struggles. The joy and the peace comes alongside of those things. And so we're, we're challenged to push and to think about the places that we might be hoping for peace that will ultimately let us down, that will not survive. And ultimately, what we find is that they want, as we talk about regularly, they will not survive death. And, and, and death is that ultimate brokenness, that ultimate enemy that each one of us will experience. And in light of that, there, there is ultimately no peace except for a God who has power over death, who entered into this world in order that he might bring true and lasting peace. And so we're invited into that, into that magnificent and powerful peace. So he comes in contrast to the offers of peace around us, and he does so in power, actually able to accomplish the peace that he promises. So he doesn't only come offering peace in contrast, he comes offering it in his own power. So there is this birth story, and it's this amazing story that, that happens here. And we, we have heard this story, the story has been read now for centuries, because it's not just a birth. 
there's something much bigger going on here. And it is indicated by what happens with the shepherds, that the angel shows up and the glory of the Lord shines over all of them. And they're terrified that there's there's this recognition. Something big is happening here. And so even the angel in his glory is demonstrating something huge is happening. But it's even bigger than that, because then a host of angels comes, a heavenly host, an army of angels show up in the fields to these shepherds to say that what happened in that inn, or outside the inn, or wherever exactly it was, is massive. And it is powerful. Because what we see is that this manger is pointing to something incredibly powerful. In fact, the greatest miracle in the history of the world. The greatest, history, the greatest miracle ever, that God himself became a man. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there's these words used, Savior and Christ and Lord, Christ being this title, Messiah from the Old Testament, the one who would bring God's love and care and presence to his people. Lord is this picture of being connected to Yahweh, that creator God who wanted relationship with his people. And that God, and they don't fully understand it. Let's be clear. They don't fully understand what's happening here. The shepherds don't. Mary and Joseph don't. More is understood as time goes on. And there are things that we don't understand, certainly. But there is a miracle happening here. It is fear-inducing, and and yet it comes with a promise of beauty and glory, because the angel says, fear not, for I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You see, there is something beautiful and good for you. There is an army of peace deployed. This army is declaring peace, not war. And yet that's the picture. The heavenly host is this picture of an angelic army, and they're come to proclaim peace. This is a demonstration of the power for the good that is being offered, that is being proclaimed. This fear-inducing glory that is shown is saying, you know, don't be afraid. Bring you good news of great joy. And then the host shows up. Proclaims glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, the one who is actually able to bring about that peace. He has that kind of power to say that this good news is actually going to be accomplished. There are probably any number of, of movies or books that have a scene where there is a person being bullied or harassed or picked up upon, and the, the, the hero comes in. And I could uh, think of one, this, this would apply in multiple situations, but there uh, is a, uh, let's, let's say for the sake of the illustration, this is a, a gang of, of uh, Chechen or Russian mafia, whatever's worse, right? Uh, mafia gets on a bus, and they're harassing everybody on the bus, uh, and they, they're throwing things down, and they're knocking things out of people's hands, and they kick everybody off except for this one young woman and a nerdy guy that's like 50 years old, nerdy dad in the back. And uh, they're harassing uh, this young woman. And he, the guy in the back, decides he's going to take care of things. He's going to fix the problem. He's going he's to save her, right? 
And it turns out through the course of the movie that this is a guy who had the experience and the training to do just that. And so uh, he cleans house, essentially. And uh, he saves this woman. He lets her off the bus, and she's saved. And he brings, at some level, peace for her and, uh, and justice to the situation. And he's able to do that because he had the power. If I'm in that situation, and I come across this Chechen mob seeking to harass people on the bus, I am going to want justice, and I'm going to want to save her. And you may be surprised to learn, I don't think I would actually be able to do much. You know, I, of course, I would like to think I would be really tough in that situation, but I would be destroyed. And, and that's probably true for uh, most of us in the room. I, I look around and see a few that it wouldn't be the case for. You'd probably be able to do it. I won't mention names. But, uh, but what is required in that moment is the actual power to do something about it. To, to bring peace for this young woman was contingent upon this nerdy dad in the back having the power to do it. And so this proclamation of peace is dependent upon a God who is able to say, I'm bringing peace to all people, to the whole world, to all of creation, that I'm reversing the effects of the fall. And that only happens if there is one who is powerful to accomplish it. And Jesus is again and again demonstrating that he has that power. Even as he's born in this humble place. And so we can trust in a God who accomplishes this miracle. Who works this, again, the greatest miracle ever. God himself become a man. And all of the, the mystery that, that is associated with that. It, it, it is that, right? But that's what we're called to believe. That's what we, as followers of Jesus, believe. And it's, it's, it's at some level, hard to believe. And yet, that's why we gather. This God who is at work in this world, who promises these kinds of miraculous things have actually happened in history and they matter for us. And so we can look to him and his power that his promises will be true, that this news that the angels proclaim, the good news of great joy to all people, that peace would come to earth on those whom, with whom he is pleased. This is a promise that we can trust in because of his power. I think it's also then encouraging to recognize that there, there's some level at which his, his power is contrasted to Caesar's power. And it's demonstrated to be much greater. It's actually demonstrated to be eternal, to, to be worthy and able to do so much more than Caesar could ever do, who is now long dead. And now Jesus is still reigning and ruling and in relationship with us who love him and seek after him, relationship with his church, with his people. He is powerful. But it is also contrasting to Caesar's power because it comes in humility. He's not demonstrating power as Caesar was with this whole census and uh, having people move all over the place just to show his power. He shows up in a manger born to nobody in this nowhere town. And then he shows up, or the angels show up, to the shepherds. I mean, this whole situation is contrary to what would have been expected, even by the people of God. 
They, they were looking for a military king, right? They had experienced the, the nation of Israel and they'd experienced it in, in, in its history in power, in military power. And what they get is this child born uh, in a manger. And this manger is a marker of what God is doing. It's a marker of his grace and work in this world. It's, it's pointing to the Savior. It's pointing to what he's going to accomplish, what he's accomplishing in relationship with them. And to announce it, the first people that he shows up to is, a, is this group of shepherds. And it's, it's amazing to think about if, if we understood how, how lowly the shepherds were. You, you know, we, we regularly say, you know, the tax collectors and sinners, the shepherds were despised. They fell in that same category. The theologians believe that they, they weren't even, they were so lowly that they couldn't even testify in, in court, that it wasn't trustworthy. And that's who he shows. He doesn't show up to the powerful. He's, he's not born to a king, to, to Caesar. He's, he's born to Mary and Joseph, who nobody knows who, who they are, right? This is the way that God regularly works. He enters into the story of nobodies. And they become central to the story. He's inviting the nobodies in. At this point, he's beginning to invite, it's for all people, it's for the Gentiles. They were, they were not a part of God's covenant. They, the, the people of God, Israel, would have not embraced this reality in the beginning. And yet, it's for them as well. It's for Gentiles, it's for women, it's for tax collectors, it's for sinners, it's for shepherds, it's for us. We're, we're the nobodies that are invited in as he comes in this humble place. And, and the shepherds, hear this offer of peace and they have to go check it out. You, you know, you, you think about the, the peace that's offered to them. Um, it, it comes in surprise that that power, even if it's off, offered to them in humility, it comes with the power to them. You think about what they might have hoped for for a peaceful night as shepherds. It would just be probably sit, sitting around the fire with their fellow shepherds and not having any uh, Wolves come out to attack the sheep and they'd just be able to sit around and talk and hang out. And what they get is terrifying. And yet it draws them into the story so that they then get to go and they're the first people to visit Jesus. They get to show up. They find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they get to tell people, including Mary and Joseph, more about what's going on. They saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The big proclamations of peace and of good news of great joy. They get to be a part of that story. This is regularly the way God is working. He's, he's inviting us into his story. And we, we don't feel like we deserve to be a part of it, and we don't. We're not big enough, we're not powerful enough, and yet he invites us in. And, and then he gets, invites us in to join and be a part of it. Their, their immediate response is, is, is worship. After they meet him, Mary treasures up all these things uh, in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Their response is to worship God, to recognize him for who he is. And, and that's what we're invited into as well speaking a little bit to the choir here as you're here at worship on Sunday morning, but worship, and this is part of it, a significant part, gathering together as the people of God to worship him.
But all of life we, we talk about is worship. We, we respond to this beautiful news by worship. We also are able to jump in trusting in his power. We are able to enter into in with humility in relationship with others, inviting them into the story as well, humbly experiencing relationship with others. We call it incarnational ministry or ministry of presence, that we would just be with other people, even in all of the mess, as he entered in humbly to this world and its mess. We get to be a part of this story by doing the same, just practicing hospitality, inviting people into our homes, spending time with people. And spending time with people is messy because people are messy, because we're all messy. And we get to be a part of that, humbling ourselves before one another. I mean, that's this beauty of the incarnation. The peace comes through that, the peace that is offered in his power. He's going to accomplish it. He does it in these humble ways that he invites us into. And sometimes just mundane ways of being with people, of talking about Jesus with our friends, our spouses, our families, our coworkers. And, and not that we're always talking about the gospel or trying to communicate these particular points, but they're just in relationship, loving people and expressing this beautiful truth that we believe actually happened and matters for you and for me. And that it comes with this promise of peace. And it's that shalom that will come ultimately and finally. And he's powerful enough to do it. And because he enters in in this powerful way of humility, we get to be a part of it.